Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, Genanthro listeners. Before we get to today's episode, I have another podcast I want to tell you about. It's called No Place Like Home. Hosts Marianne and Anna Jane tackle the climate crisis with heart, depth, vulnerability, and grace. This season, called Bring the Light, they're exploring how spirituality helps us find courage and strength to fight climate change. They chat with a Buddhist climate scientist, an evangelical pastor from Puerto Rico, a witch, an indigenous spiritual teacher, a Muslim activist, a rabbi, and more. No Place Like Home gives us tangible advice on how to fight the crisis. But most importantly, it helps us deal with it on an emotional, psychological, and spiritual level. Their season is now complete, so be sure to check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, on to the show. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans 20,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. How about a positive LSD story? That would be newsworthy, don't you think? Today, a young man on acid realized that all matter is merely energy condensed to a slow vibration, that we are all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. There is no such thing as death. Life is only a dream, and we are the imagination of ourselves. Here's Tom with the weather. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Mike Osborne. Okay, where am I today? I am looking at rock that is roughly one billion years old. I'm out at Enchanted Rock, state park in the middle of the Texas Hill Country. It's this giant pink dome, 750 feet tall. The rock is made of pink granite that's filled with potassium feldspar, quartz, a little bit of mica, but it's really hard, chunky stuff. I mean, this rock does not 
look like it wants to weather. But in places it has weathered. It's made sort of odd rock sculptures. You know, almost like statues, giant chess pieces or something. The rock is peeling off the dome, exfoliating, like sheets of paper slipping off. It's created these caves and crevices. I'm actually in one of those crevices right now because I wanted to get out of the wind. The whole state park feels like something in a Dr. Seuss book. It's trippy. It's really trippy. That actually has a lot to do with why I'm out here. When I was a teenager, I got invited out by these two guys in high school, and they said, hey, let's go out to Enchanted Rock and take mushrooms. I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> let's go trip out at Enchanted Rock. I mean, the thing is, this place, it's got a quality to it, man. It's mystical. I mean, you get out here and you just feel, you feel time. You feel deep time. Now, I had a great mushroom trip that day. And I actually had, I don't know, a handful of really powerful experiences on psychedelics when I was a teenager. I tripped a little bit in my 20s, but those first couple times, that, those were the ones that really opened my eyes. Those were the experiences that were profound. I think you've got to be careful here, because I don't want to say, hey, everybody should go out and take mushrooms and trip or anything like that, but... At the same time, I don't want to, for one second, minimize or dismiss how important that was to me when I was a teenager. How important it still is to me. I mean, I felt like I saw the world and I saw myself in a way that I'm not sure I would have seen it otherwise. I feel like I needed to trip, and I'm really glad I did. And of course, I'm not the first person to say stuff like this. There's a lot of people out there who have had really profound experiences on psychedelics. Now, you've probably heard that in recent years, there's been something of a resurgence, a, a renaissance in using psychedelics in a clinical setting, in a mental health context. Michael Pollan, the science writer, wrote an article a few years ago about this, and more recently he wrote a book called How to Change Your Mind. He's been kind of one of the go-to voices for all this new science. Same with Tim Ferriss, who's got a popular podcast. Now, one thing to say about all of this renewed interest in psychedelics is that this is happening in the context of a true mental health crisis. I'm sure you know this already, but there are a lot of sick people out there right now. Suicide rates are up. The opioid epidemic is still raging, even in the middle of coronavirus. There are a lot of people in a lot of pain. And, you know, not to knock the mental health profession, but there hasn't been a whole lot of, like, success or movement on that front in a long time. It's not like there's a whole lot of innovation happening, especially in a pharmacological sense. So the fact that there's new science showing, hey, maybe we can use psychedelics to help treat people is, for me, really exciting. And I think it's really exciting for a lot of people. It represents a sign of hope in otherwise pretty dark times. Now, among all the research happening right now, there is a subset of research that's a little bit more relevant to this show. A lot of people who are being administered psilocybin in a clinical setting are coming out of those experiences reporting higher scores of nature-relatedness. Now, that's actually something that mental health professionals can measure 
nature relatedness. And just to pause on it for a second, if you take away all the psychedelic stuff, high scores of nature relatedness are correlated with all kinds of positive psychological outcomes, things like well-being and empathy and ability to confront difficult emotions. Being connected with nature, whether you get connected through tripping or however you do it, is a good thing for your mind and body. Most mental health professionals will tell you that. So I know it's a little bit of a stretch, but for me, that is how this is about the Anthropocene. Plus, the science is just too interesting not to do something on this show. And it turns out, I happen to know somebody who's really close to this science, and I cannot wait to introduce you to him. Uh, my name is Albert Garcia Romeo. I'm a psychologist and a researcher. I work at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, uh, and we have a laboratory there called the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research, where I work with uh, Matt Johnson, Roland Griffiths, and Fred Barrett, and a team of uh, scientists who are working to understand how uh, psilocybin and other psychedelic drugs uh, function in the brain and what types of uh, therapeutic potentials they might have to help people uh, with mental health conditions. To give you just a little bit more backstory on Albert, we were both in Palo Alto at the same time. We got connected and hung out and drank a few beers. I knew he had an interest in transpersonal psychology, but I kind of lost track of him for a little while until a few years ago I had learned that he had wound up at this lab at Johns Hopkins. This is one of the first labs in recent years to actually get approval from the FDA to administer psilocybin. That and Albert is just one of the smartest guys I know. So really looking forward to bringing this conversation. Now, I know not everybody has tripped and not everybody should. But if you never have tripped, it is very difficult to describe what it's like. It's just not an easy thing to put into words. It's sort of notoriously hard to explain to people. So I began the conversation with Albert asking, how do you describe what it's like to trip? That's a great question. And, you know, I like to always start when I talk about this with the caveat that um, one of the first qualifiers that, that people kind of come out of the experience with is that it's quote unquote ineffable, that words don't do it justice and that it's very difficult to put into words. Uh, and in fact, Ken Wilber, the philosopher, um, you know, he likens this type of thing to looking at the recipe for a chocolate cake and seeing a picture of a chocolate cake. And, you know, you can kind of look at that stuff and have a sense for, okay, this is what a chocolate cake is like. But until you put it in your mouth and eat it, and you, you know, you don't really get the taste of it. Uh, and that's a completely different type of understanding. Uh, so I like to start that way so that people can understand that, you know, whatever we say here, uh, it might not really get to the core of the experience, but these are really powerful mood altering, uh, mind altering substances. You know, of course, there's been talk about microdosing. Most of the work that we do at Hopkins is the opposite of that. So we use high doses specifically because we're trying to elicit these types of peak or transcendent uh, or sometimes called mystical experiences. And so when people take uh, psychedelics like psilocybin, there's a lot of different types of changes going on in their brain as well as kind of in their uh, subjective experience, their consciousness. Some of those relate to perceptual changes and things like if you move your hand in front of your face, you might see a trail behind it. Uh, you might see halos around lights. You know, it might look like things like that are typically inanimate objects like the, the walls to your room or, uh, you know, the carpet or something might be moving around. You know, there, there's some great uh, effects like that in uh, Fear and Loathing Las, Las Vegas when they show up at yeah. the hotel. 
Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of, the carpet sort of shifting around. I always thought that was one of the best representations I've ever seen in cinema. A- yeah. Absolutely. And so perceptually, you know, that's one of the things that starts to happen is that things start to look a little different. There's changes in the way that your body feels. Uh, so you can be much more acutely aware of your respiration and your heartbeat and uh, even feelings like noticing energy moving through your body, that kind of thing. Yeah. And as the, the effects kind of continue to develop over time, there's changes in the way people think. You know, thinking can become more quick, uh, more rapid in succession, more thoughts, and sometimes memories can come up. Um, you know, the emotional tone can be shifted and become very pronounced. And what I mean by that is people can get very positive or negative, you know, difficult emotions can come up like sadness. I I don't like negative as a term. I think more difficult, Um, you know, so sadness, grief, fear can be a big one for people, anxiety. Actually, I think that that's really important. So it's not pure euphoria, you know, and it's not uniformly euphoria. There's such a thing as a bad trip. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've talked to people who say, you know, I had an ayahuasca experience and it was like watching a, a reel of my life, a highlight reel. And I saw all the horrible things that I did to other people and all the terrible decisions I made. And every time I was a shitty person, basically, yeah. um, you know, it was yeah. kind of played in front of my, my face. Uh, and part of that experience uh, was to kind of come to terms with those things and to reach some level of self-acceptance or self-forgiveness around uh, one's own shortcomings, but, you know, with an eye towards becoming a better person. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, you know, and I, I certainly want to talk about the kind of marriage of sessions with the, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and the and the kind of integration work that goes into it. I want to stick on this for a little bit longer in terms of what it's like. And there's sort of two other ways I want to do it. Uh, one is, are there comparable experiences that people describe where they say it's like, you know, deep meditation, or it's like climbing a mountain, or it's like, you know, some sort of other, I don't know, religious ecstasy or whatever, you know, are there comparable experiences where people say it's like this, except, you know, what they're describing is not having taken a psychedelic? Um, You know, I think you probably pulled up many of the comparisons that are uh, frequently made. So deep meditative states can be one of them. You know, sometimes when people go through these experiences in the study at the lab, you know, they'll say in terms of it's kind of like relative importance that the experiences can be like um, when their first kid was born or when they lost a parent. Yeah. So like these really highly memorable, extremely kind of you know remarkable experiences. And of course, you know, I said loss of a parent and, you know, I think that comes back to you. This is not all fun and games. I mean, it can be a very profound experience without necessarily being a, a euphoric one. Right, right. You know, the the last thing I want to say on this, uh, because I do think, you know, no matter how you work to describe the experience, it's very hard to convey it. The one way in which I used to try to communicate it to friends was I, uh, I'd use the term hyper-reality. Like it was like reality amplified. And the, I guess the emotional thrust of that was a feeling of 
profound truth of uh, inarguable truth that I was seeing things in my life and in the world and in what was around me that that just had such clarity, even if that was a subjective experience, it was an access to a feeling of truth that, you know, that, that, that's where I guess I run out of words. Um, I wonder if in your experiences observing people, if similar sorts of things are reported. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, a, well, again, another one of these hallmark features that we use to describe these experiences is what I believe is William James called the noetic quality, um, which is basically this sense of absolute truth, this sense of becoming in contact with something that's more real than what your everyday life uh, is like. And so it does have this sort of almost a religious type of connotation for some people or maybe spiritual. Yeah. But, you know, it's there's something about it where there's, a, like you said, a sense of absolute authority that there's not there's no real arguing with that. This experience is uh, so profound and, and authoritative that it kind of is uh, end in itself, you know, beyond all these other types of experiences that we can have. Yeah. Deep authenticity, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and I think one of the big things too to kind of drive home and talking about what the experience is like um, is really that, you know, we walk around with a sense of self that most of the time we're not hyper aware of. And so I think of that as kind of like, you know, I, I wear glasses, which I've worn for my entire life. And when they're in front of my face, you know, I'm just used to this, having them on there. But uh, when people have these experiences with psychedelics, their sense of self can be fundamentally shifted temporarily. And sometimes, you know, as in the case of the uh, personality openness in a longer term way. And, you know, what I mean by that is sort of all the filters and, you know, what we call like schema and biases and conceptualizations that we have about who we are and, and what the world is like and what our place in the universe is, you know, we kind of walk around in that like a suit of armor in a way. Yeah. And um, when we have these experiences, you know, the armor kind of can start to break down and come off. And then you can have sort of this experience of unmitigated reality where, you know, there's nothing in between you and that outside world all of a sudden. And, um, and then, you know, there can be this, again, sense of kind of direct contact with uh, a higher exist, higher part of existence or higher plane or, or, you know, whatever you want to think of it as. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the ego is in autopilot mode so often. And I think, you know, ego dissolution is another, you know, sort of hallmark feature here. Uh, so one thing I would, I'd like to do now is really draw an important distinction between uh, recreational use and the kind of safe practices that you guys have developed and, and have been a part of uh, at Hopkins and at other labs around around the world. Because I, I told you earlier, when I was an adolescent and I was in my 20s, I had some really, really important experiences on magic mushrooms in particular, on psilocybin, where I just saw things about myself uh, and saw things about the world that, you know, really sort of catapulted, I feel like, my personal growth forward. But I also had friends who, you know, I tripped with who, I felt like they would kind of wake up the next day and say, eh, you know, that was just a drug experience. I don't know how big a deal all those realizations really were. Uh, and it 
strikes me that one thing that it tends to be absent from the recreational use, and certainly was absent from my experiences, was any kind of validation of the experience, any kind of sense-making that happened either before or after. It sort of like was up to me to say whether or not those realizations that I had were meaningful or not. And to my mind, that sort of role of a guide or, you know, in indigenous cultures, maybe it's a shaman, whatever it may be, it feels to me that that's actually a really important part of what has to come along with this if we really are going to be bringing it into a mental health context. So with all of that, I'm hoping you can uh, shine some light on the process. You know, how do you guys do this work at Hopkins? You know, walk us through this kind of methodology of administering psilocybin in a clinical setting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you're making a really important distinction here, which is, you know, there's a long history of uh, traditional indigenous use of these types of substances, whether we're talking about peyote or ayahuasca or psilocybin. And then that's got its own kind of cultural container um, in which it's kind of used. Uh, and then, of course, there's recreational uses we talked about, which, um, you know, that's more a kind of a do-it-yourself type of thing where, you know, people who are interested take these uh, substances. Often they're illicit. And, you know, they have these experiences and they kind of go on about their lives. And then, of course, you know, we're, what we're seeing now, though, is this sort of more of a medical model. And so this clinical work that we've been developing at Hopkins and other universities around the world is really focused on, you know, how can we use uh, psychedelics as tools in mental health care treatment? In terms of the way that we have been practicing psychedelic therapy, um, a lot of that is informed by work that was done in the middle of the 20th century and now, you know, new developments that are taking place as we speak. And really, uh, a lot of that has yet to be kind of empirically tested to say, you know, this is the right way to do it and this is the wrong way to do it. But what I can tell you is, you know, how we have been doing it. And uh, it's so far seeming to be you know, pretty successful in terms of helping people deal with certain types of uh, mental health conditions. And the usual kind of sequence of events that we go through is we'll have a specific target. So for instance, it might be something like major depression, tobacco, nicotine addiction, anorexia nervosa, early stage Alzheimer's disease, which is a study that I'm working on right now. Um, and so, you know, we have a specific condition that we're interested in studying and we have people contact us and they come in for a screening Usually what we're doing with the screening is assessing, you know, if they meet these inclusion criteria, so they have the condition that we're interested in, and also, you know, making sure that they're safe to administer a high dose of psilocybin. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's got a couple of dimensions. You know, one is just the sort of physical safety aspect of it. You know, is their heart okay? Because this can increase blood pressure, can increase heart rate in a way that could be problematic for people with cardiac problems. It could be intense, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then also, you know, is so is it physically safe for them? Do they have any uh, issues that might make it unsafe? Uh, and also psychologically, is it safe for them? And, um, you know, there's people who um, might have, for instance, a predisposition to certain types of uh, psychotic uh, illness. And those folks, we you know, we don't want to uh, put them in a situation where we would make things worse for them. Yeah, that's that one's really interesting because you're, you know, obviously looking for one kind of psychological issue, whether it's anorexia nervosa or major depression, but not other kinds. And it seems like, you know, oftentimes those uh, psychological afflictions can be correlated. That seems actually like the, like kind of a tough one to screen for in a way. 
It is. It's, you know, it's complicated dance that we do. And um, I think it's an issue with a lot of mental health research. Um, my wife is also an addictions researcher. And so and many of my friends and colleagues are. So we talk about this a lot. But mm-hmm. usually what you see what you're calling, you know, what you call comorbidities, you know, which is a person's not just depressed or uh, addicted to alcohol, um, but oftentimes they have both of those conditions. And then maybe something else too, like post-traumatic stress. And maybe they're also using opioids and you know, so you can have a sort of slew of these different things going on. Uh, and so in real life, it, it's much messier. And when we're doing these studies, because we're trying to focus in on a specific condition, often we have to exclude people who have some of these other things that could be extenuating circumstances. But we are working, thankfully, actually, uh, my friend Fred Barrett is uh, starting up a study on people who have both major depression and alcohol use disorder um, at our lab. Uh, so that will be, you know, one of these uh, attempts uh, on our part to kind of uh, make this more kind of clinically valid for people in the real world who don't just have one or the other, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, screening, you know, is is, is a challenging part of the process. and But at some point, you're able to select the right participants for a study. You know, so what happens after screening? Yeah. So screening is that big part in the beginning where, you know, we kind of can get a green light or not on bringing a person in the door and, you know, also making sure that they have all the information they need to make a good informed decision about whether they want to go through with this with with us or not. But, you know, once people sign up, um, you know, there's usually what we call a preparation phase. So for that, you know, there's a couple of aspects that are really important, one of which is just building a therapeutic rapport. And that's kind of a sense of teamwork that the people who are going to be sitting, guiding these sessions are safe and comfortable for the participant to be around. So that's something that takes place over time. Usually we would have at least about a month or so of preparation before we do any psilocybin sessions. Is that about building trust, Albert? I mean, is that about, you know, sort of having a rapport and having a relationship with the patient? I mean, it sounds a lot like, in some sense, traditional therapy. Yeah, it is. It is like a traditional therapy in that regard. And and it is about building that trust because it, that is a huge component to being able to open up to these experiences that people have under the influence. Uh, and then it's also, we do what you might consider psychoeducation. So we talk about this is what the drug could be like so that people have a sense of preparedness in the face of these experiences. Uh, so we spend some time just going over, you know, this might happen. You might feel this way. You might You might feel really scared at some point or paranoid. And, you know, if you do, then this is how to kind of manage that, you know, with us. And isn't that often like a lean into it? Like, don't try and hide from it, a, a kind of turn and confront the monster. It feels like I've heard that somewhere. Oh, yeah, that's that's definitely um, the way that we kind of approach those experiences that are difficult is really to tell people to, like you said, uh, go with the flow um, or lean into it. Mm-hmm. We kind of tell people in general to trust, let go and be open to the experience. And so if that includes, you know, feelings of fear or anxiety, we typically, instead of trying to run away from it, we try to um, let people have those experiences. And so that way they can move through it uh, and, you know, kind of it can resolve. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, um, describe the room a little bit. What, what is the environment? What is a visual here? Yeah. So uh, as I was saying, we kind of go through the preparation and we do all of this in the same space, which is, it's very much like a therapist's office. There's a couple of chairs in there for the people who are monitoring the sessions. There's usually a nice big couch where the person will be laying down for a session when they're on, on the drug. You know, it's you try to make a kind of an aesthetically pleasing therapist's office space. Um, mm-hmm. So there's, there's not a lot to it. You know, it's trying to be kind of a comfortable, safe space 
uh, where people can kind of lay down and uh, relax uh, throughout the session and, you know, while doing the work before and after. Is there music? Uh, yes. So um, for almost all of the sessions, we have a playlist that we use. It was put together in large part by a music therapist by the name of Helen Bonney, hmm. um, who has worked with uh, psychedelic researchers back in the 60s. Uh, much of that is um, Western classical music. Over time, there's been some refinement of that. We've added some more uh, world music, like um, you know Indian classical music, sitar, other types of droning music like gongs and uh, didgeridoo and even some more recent uh, non-classical pieces like pop music uh, has kind of made its way onto the playlist over time. So we have that. And, and the music actually plays an important part because um, you can kind of think of if you're growing like a vine up a wall, you know, you need sort of a scaffolding for that to move along. Uh, and the music can provide that structure for the experience. So when people are having their sessions, um, they're usually lying down on the couch. And there's, again, a couple of monitors who they've been working with now for some time who sit with them throughout the day. Does that include you? Have you I mean, are you sitting in on some of these sessions? Oh, yeah. That's the best part of my job. So every, everything else is kind of the administrative uh, headaches that I have to deal with so that I can actually do that. <laughs> that's interesting you say that. That it's. A, I mean, it's a, it sounds to me like that must be exciting. It must be an honor, you know, and you get to be with people in these very profound moments. Um, I'm wondering like what you tell yourself ahead of time, like how you prepare to guide somebody else through it. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think that's as discussed as it should be, but I've sat with a lot of people uh, and I and I agree with you 100%. It is an honor to kind of be able to witness these experiences with people because, you know, oftentimes they're coming out and saying, wow, that was life-changing or um, that was really meaningful and, and really important. And you develop a deep rapport and bond with the people that you work with throughout this a lot of the time. And going into these sessions, for me, part of the process is kind of going in there um, almost like you're going to be you know, having the drug experience. So you have to really just be ready and open for whatever is going to come up. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, really to have a sort of sense of empathy or compassion of being with the person there. I think Jung talked about uh, what he called the temenos uh, in therapy is sort of sacred space. Yeah. And so, you know, part of what we're doing is creating, again, this container, this therapeutic container where people can feel safe and comfortable and then have the experience that they need to have and then move through that experience. And then what comes out on the other side is what, you know, I think you're referring to in terms of your own recreational use and how that differs from therapy um, is the, the whole meaning making process uh, or that, you know, that's the integration that comes after the fact. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know, that's uh, something that we will typically spend uh, weeks on as well. So people will usually do a debriefing the next day after people get a good night's sleep and come back and, you know, they're back to normal. Really, what we're doing is checking in to make sure that there's no weird side effects or nothing that uh, unexpected had come up. And, you know, again, these experiences can be really big. You know, people can have different types of insights or go back to memories of uh, parts of their lives that maybe they did or did not want to deal with at that moment or, you know, have realizations about, for instance, their relationships or their career trajectory or, you know, lots of things that can come up for folks when they're having these big experiences. And so, you know, when they come back the next day, we're starting that that integration process and saying, okay, so what happened? And, you know, where are you now? And, you know, what's our plan going forward here? And of course, a lot of that is uh, predicated by the, the specific condition that people are coming in for. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, we've done this with 
lots of healthy normal uh, volunteers as we call them so it's a weird way of <laughs> uh, weird terminology yeah who's normal <laughs> right uh, exactly uh, but yeah what we what i mean by that is people who don't have any specific you know psychological or mental health conditions mm-hmm. and you know for them there's this sort of meaning making process that we're going through that is just kind of an existential type of thing you know whereas when you're dealing with a specific condition like depression uh, or with an addict substance use disorder or an addiction, um, then, you know, obviously you're going to be focusing more so on that. So uh, I want to ask a little bit about some of the interesting use cases. One thing I did want to say is I've I've imagined what it would be like to do this and to have you in the room. You're, you know, you're kind of a... Uh, yeah, you're you're a big guy, and you got um, you've got a big, broad smile. <laughs> I don't know if you know that. I'm sure somebody's told you that before, but it strikes me you're sort of personality-wise very well equipped for this. I think you do have a calming presence about you, uh, and I do think you have a uh, comfort about you. So I guess maybe, man, I'm just playing a compliment, but you strike me as somebody who's very predisposed to having the right kind of energy uh, when things get scary, because things can get scary. Yeah. And, you know, thank you for the compliment. And I, you know, I do think that that is an important part of the work is making sure that people feel comfortable and safe. And it it is a skill that takes some real work to develop, I think, in terms of being able to sit with people through these potentially terrifying experiences. And I've had, you know, the real pleasure of working with people like Bill Richards, who's been doing this work since the 1960s, and who's been a mentor uh, as well as Mary Cosimano, who's sat at our lab through hundreds and hundreds of these sessions. So you do get a sort of sense of presence from people like that who uh, learn how to do this work uh, well. And, you know, it's an important piece of the puzzle because even if somebody is starting to have an inkling of a fear, if you respond the wrong way, you can actually kind of make things spiral out of control in a way that makes it much worse. And so it's really. Um, you know, I think of the word guru, which kind of has a root to the word mountain. Mm. And so the idea of the guru is, you know, they're sort of like this mountain that's immovable, you know, and so whatever comes around it, a storm or, you know, anything, any strong wind, you know, it's not going to move the mountain. And so having that groundedness uh, in the room and during the sessions is really important. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, it seems to me it comes to you, you know, fairly naturally. Um, So I do want to talk about some of the interesting use cases for this. I mean, uh, like a lot of people, I read the Michael Pollan New Yorker article, which was, I forget, 2014, 2015, something like that. Mm Mm-hmm. And one of the ones that really stuck out was the sessions with patients with uh, terminal disease, with, with, I think it was largely terminal cancer. You've been involved in some of that work, right? Uh, actually, that was wrapping up when I got to Hopkins. So I was okay. not directly involved with those um, with the, those participants. But yeah, we did do a big study, and that has been a huge interest, You know, even harkening back to the 60s, working with uh, people in palliative care settings, uh, people with terminal illness, you know, people with intractable diseases, basically, who obviously are, are undergoing some real mental stress and who are really kind of struggling psychologically with kind of their impending demise. Yeah, I mean, making peace with death, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, obviously, we're all dying, you know, and we're all kind of in that human condition. But it's much more, I think, palpable for people who are dealing with a cancer or something like that. And so... Yeah, that's been, I think, one of the big success stories here with this type of work with psychedelics and 
our lab at Hopkins, um, the lab at NYU, uh, one at UCLA have all published studies with cancer patients uh, in psilocybin, finding that it can help them kind of get through uh, some of their symptoms of depression or anxiety. Uh, and, you know, I think that's hugely important because we don't have a lot that works for those folks right now. And so you can kind of imagine a person who's really sick and just really feeling sad and and lonely and isolated and just kind of cutting themselves off from people because they feel, what's the point? You know, everything is kind of coming to an end anyways, versus somebody who has one of these profound experiences with psilocybin and then really does see, wow, every minute that I have left is a gift here and I need to use that to the fullest and really re-engage with the people they care about. They were, for instance, um, estranged from family or loved ones, contacting them, reaching out to them, that type of stuff where all of a sudden they're really trying to get the most out of what's left. And that can really be a huge shift. And that's, uh, you know, so important. Uh, one other use case I wanted to bring up, just because it's gotten a lot of attention, is really severe PTSD. I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that. I know Michael Pollan has brought this up, but I think you're the originator of the idea that a, an intense psychedelic experience can almost be like reverse PTSD. That's kind of all one question. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the research with PTSD and then, you know, this notion of reverse PTSD. What does that, what does that mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, uh, post-traumatic stress is, is a huge problem. People deal with trauma from all sorts of different situations, whether it be, you know, being in combat or being the victim of uh, some sort of assault or abuse. You know, it can happen to people when they're children. It can happen to them when they're adults, any time in their life. And for some people, this can have these really damaging repercussions where they just have these persisting symptoms and they, they can feel hyper arousal, hyper vigilance. They can feel basically unsafe in almost any uh, type of setting or, you know, have flashbacks. It's, it's really a debilitating condition and one that we haven't had very successful treatments for. And the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, um, is this organization that's been pushing for psychedelic research for decades. And that group has done some wonderful work, really focusing on use of uh, MDMA. So MDMA is slightly different from some of these, what we call classic psychedelics, um, but it's still kind of under the rubric of the same type of drug in a way um, that, you know, it's a Schedule One substance, so it's highly restricted, and it has the ability to create these very profound mood-altering effects. And, you know, they're actually talked about as being intactogens, MDMA specifically, and drugs like that which harkens to their ability to kind of touch within and, you know, in a way to come into close contact with one's own emotions and, and emotional state and the emotional state of others around you. But for that reason, you know, they've been used as a tool in therapy for years. And the recent research that MAPS has been working on has really seen some remarkable benefits for people who are suffering from PTSD when they are receiving a few doses of MDMA within this sort of structured treatment that's similar to well, I was describing what we do with psilocybin. And there's, you know, a lot of solid evidence uh, showing benefits uh, from MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. And, you know, so much so that that's on its way to uh, receiving FDA approval, hopefully in the next, you know, four or five years. Yeah, so. yeah, I heard about that. Um, what about this notion of, like, re reverse PTSD is probably, that's not quite the that's probably a misnomer. I'm probably mischaracterizing it. But can you elaborate on that notion and, and, and make sure I get the language right? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, in seeing some of these experiences and um, also just understanding the sort of biological framework that we're working on here, I've thought about ways to characterize these psychedelic experiences that would make sense, particularly in a biomedical sort of setting, because usually, for instance, when you're talking about a curative type of process, it's something that happens slowly over time if you're trying to you know, take a medication and get better, for instance. And so the idea of having all of a sudden this big experience and then, you know, feeling much better and having that improvement go on for some time uh, is a little bit foreign, especially in kind of a mental health treatment. But, uh, you know, we have a very uh, similar conceptualization uh, when we're talking about trauma, except for, you know, trauma is sort of the bad case. So, you know, you have something terrible happens all of a sudden, you know, one uh, discrete event, and then Afterwards, the brain is working different. The person is struggling with symptoms for months or for years, potentially, you know, for the rest of their lives. And so, you know, we have a very good framework for when something terrible happens and then people struggle with it for a long time afterwards. But, you know, I was really struck by people's experiences in these psilocybin sessions and what I termed it as sort of like an inverse PTSD, where it's this one single discrete event where all of a sudden people are having these changes in the way they think and feel and behave that go on in the positive direction for months or, or potentially years or even maybe the rest of their lives. And so that's just really my way of getting at the fact that uh, these experiences, when they happen in a certain way, kind of have these reverberating effects that kind of go far beyond the one, you know, the single day of the experience. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, I think it's brilliant. It makes so much sense. If, if a single acute, awful experience can uh, lead to all kinds of, uh, you know, behavior change uh, and, and fear response for a long, long time afterwards, why can't it work the other way? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. Well, so let's talk a little bit about your research. I mean, uh, so I know some of what you've been up to at Hopkins is uh, experiments around addiction, and I think uh, tobacco addiction in particular. I'd like to learn a little bit about that, and I'd love to hear whatever you can tell me about the Alzheimer's work. I know that's sort of in process, so there may be only be so much we can talk about. But, you know, tell me about what you've been up to. Yeah. So, you know, kind of picking back up on the story where, uh, you know, I showed up at Hopkins in 2012, I was uh, an expert in transcendent experiences, uh, which is not all that useful in the real world. But <laughs> I disagree, Albert. But yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I'd spent all this time uh, in graduate school studying that. And, um, but um, I showed up and they're like, well, here's, uh, like you say, a use case. Uh, let's, you know, see where the rubber meets the road. Uh, we have a study that we started here. Matt Johnson uh, got this thing going in 2008. That's a brilliant scientist. Not only has he been doing all this stuff with uh, psychedelics for years and years, but he's worked across the board with pretty much every other class of drugs that, that exists. But one of the areas that really showed the most promise back in the early era of psychedelic research was using psychedelics to treat uh, addiction. And of course, addiction is a long-standing human problem uh, that we don't have great treatments for. Um, now, the kind of weird thing is, historically speaking, psychedelics were kind of out the door by the 1970 or so when um, Controlled Substances Act started, and they're all heavily restricted. So there's no more research. And until 1964, I believe, there was not even really like a, a clear medical acknowledgement that there was any danger or health risks associated with tobacco smoking. So it was perfectly normal. Many people smoked, and even people's doctors were kind of you know, sometimes recommending that they smoke. 
Yeah. Right. So you go back and you see these funny old advertisements and stuff. Uh, like my doctor told me to smoke camels, you know? Yeah. 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 So there wasn't, interestingly, there was not an overlap there where there would have been an awareness that tobacco addiction was a problem and their use of psychedelics for treating addiction. So much of that early work focused on alcoholism and some of it focused on opioid dependence, but nobody ever looked at tobacco. Now, ironically, tobacco is the worst of all the drugs. It just, you know, it kills 5 million people around the world every year, kills about 500,000 Americans each year and has every year for the last 10 years at least. And that's way above all the other drugs. Uh, closest that uh, comes to that would be alcohol, uh, which is killing still under 100,000 uh, Americans a year. Um, and of course, then you have the opioid crisis and stuff. But if you add all the deaths from all the drugs together and put them in one pile and then you, you compare them just to tobacco, tobacco still, you know, takes the cake. It's it's a really big public health problem. And crazy addictive. God almighty, quitting smoking was one of the hardest things I ever did. It, extremely addictive. And yeah. so even though there's three FDA-approved treatments for smoking cessation, none of them really works all that well. And what I mean by that is the majority of people who use those uh, are not going to quit on any given attempt in the long term. And so, you know, you have medications that are out there, uh, nicotine replacement treatments, and they can help some people, especially motivated people, you know, to get through. But um, you still have the majority of smokers who say they want to quit and are unable to do so. And so Matt had this idea, you know, let's get this study going. Let's look at psilocybin for tobacco addiction. It's a big problem and nobody's done this. So, so when I showed up in 2012, all right, your job is to get this study finished. So I said, okay, I didn't know anything about smoking. And in fact, until time I left California, I was still smoking as myself, as a matter of fact. Is that right? <laughs> I, didn't, yeah. I think I remember that, that you were smokers. I was a social smoker back, you know, in graduate school, but in undergrad, I mean, I was a heavy smoker for, for years. Um, eventually I, I just stopped. Um, but when I showed up, I was not very fluent in the world of uh, tobacco addiction or tobacco addiction treatment. Right. So I started learning um, as much as I could as quickly as possible. And part of that was, you know, doing this cognitive behavioral therapy with smokers uh, who were coming into the trial and then administering several high doses of psilocybin to them in the course of the treatment to try to help them quit smoking. And so that was, you know, my first foray into doing all of this stuff when I showed up at Hopkins. And it was, you know, magnificent because we really saw some tremendous success with people who had tried and failed to quit, you know, many times previously and were basically kind of resigned to being a lifelong smoker. Uh, and so thankfully, we were able to get the majority of those people to quit and to stay quit for a long time. Uh, we followed them out for one year um, where we saw at that point, 67% of them were still not smoking. Wow. How does that compare with uh, other treatments? Uh, usually you'd see uh, maybe 25 or 30 percent success rates, um, you know, at six months, and then of course over time those tend to degrade. Yeah. So, um, you know, we had an 80 percent success rate at six months. Um, now this was a small open label trial, which means there's no control condition. There's all sorts of methodological problems in terms of extrapolating those findings out, you know, uh, beyond to just say, you know, this could work. Right, 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 right. But it did, you know, it was safe was one question, you know, uh, and it did seem to really help these people both from their own kind of testimonials and, you know, their their narratives, as well as, you know, the hard science of just 
getting the biological verification that they had not in, you know, smoked in the last whatever it was, week or so. I think there's been some follow-up studies that have shown similar robustness, or is that ongoing? So we, um, you know, we published those findings in 2014, and we continue to follow up with those same, you know, initial 15 smokers. So this is a small study, you know, 15 people. Yeah. But we kept, you know, kept up with them, and we published findings out to two and a half years on average after their session, and, you know, finding that, again, a majority of them were still abstinent, which was great. You know, we also got some interest from Dr. Elliot Stein, who's over at the uh, National Institute on Drug Abuse. And he said, you know, we should near image these people if you're going to do this anymore. And, uh, you know, we decided, okay, we need to do a bigger study and we need to do a randomized control trial so that we can, you know, really test this in a, a scientifically rigorous way. Yeah. And so, yeah, I've been actually working on that since uh, 2015. And we're almost done. Uh, we probably need another year or so to get to the end. But in terms of the people that we've seen so far, um, you know, we're randomly assigning them to either get nicotine patches, which is FDA-approved treatment, or a single high dose of psilocybin. And then we're also providing both groups the, the same matched cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, but, you know, right now the, the results are looking very solid in terms of the abstinence being way higher in the psilocybin group than in the uh, nicotine patch group. And so, again, that's the type of finding that hopefully will help us validate this as a potential treatment in the future. I mean, of course, you know, we've been gathering all these MRI scan data before and after treatment to look at people's brains and what's going on there. And, and we're hoping that that will give us a better sense for how this works under the hood, because it's still something of a mystery, you know, in terms of the biological bases for these persisting benefits that people are seeing. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you know, what what accounts for this, right? Getting off of nicotine, I know from firsthand experience, is really, really hard. I could see, uh, you know, psilocybin experience that sort of focuses on that particular problem, allowing me to have a, a greater awareness of the body. But I mean, one of the hallmarks of addiction whether it's nicotine or alcohol or opiates or whatever, is, is deep feelings of powerlessness, that the drug has a power over you, whether that's chemically or psychologically or both. And, you know, why would it be that a psilocybin experience or other psychedelic experience helps you overcome that? Is it a recognition of your own power? I mean, and, and on a biochemical level, that's a complicated question. On a psychological level, that's a complicated question. So I, I'm not looking for a clean answer to that, but maybe you can shine some light on just the the problem I'm speaking to. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. There's all these different dimensions and, and you know, we're not quite sure really. There's been some great work in the last 10 or so years looking at the brain effects of these psychedelics. Um, so what's going on in there? And it turns out that it's disrupting the these different brain networks like the default mode network, which is often kind of talked about as being uh, correlated with our sense of self. And so in disrupting this network of brain regions and the way that they communicate, uh, and so it's got not only those brain dimensions, but also those psychological dimensions. And mm -hmm. um, But, you know, we still, like you said, don't have a very good, clean story of what it is. So that's something that, you know, we'll be working on for decades still to understand. But it's exciting time for the field as a result, because there's all this new work going on. Yeah. You know, and in terms of the psychological dimensions, you know, I think you, you know, named some of the really big pieces, which is, you know, a sense of empowerment. There's a sense of enhanced motivation, uh, a sense that I can do this. There's a sense of sometimes breaking free from the addiction. 
uh, or even kind of, you know, put it in perspective against all the other things in your life, kind of coming away with a renewed sense of, oh, yeah, this is really trivial in the grand scheme of things. And uh, I don't need to have this in my life anymore. And I'm better off without it. And those types of realizations can be really powerful and motivating to help people kind of put down a bad habit and walk away from it for good. Uh, and of course, you know, I know that the drug effects are a big part of it, but again, the wraparound care that is provided is also really important. And so that support, it plays a big role in a lot of these positive outcomes that we're seeing in these studies as well. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask one more question before finally arriving at some of the nature-relatedness work. You mentioned uh, Alzheimer's. Why uh, why would you look at Alzheimer's patients? Uh, and does it have anything to do with this concept of neuroplasticity? Yeah, great question. And, you know, the short answer is yes, absolutely. So uh, backing up a little bit, you know, I gone to talk to a colleague at Hopkins, Dr. Paul Rosenberg, who's you know world-renowned expert on Alzheimer's disease and studying new therapies, which it's notoriously difficult to find good treatments. And they've been at it for years and have had a hard time of it. You know, he was actually working with dronabinol, which, uh, which is THC. And so I was interested in his research with THC and Alzheimer's patients. And he was like, you know, that's all well and good, but you guys have this psilocybin available. We should do this work in these patients who are just getting their diagnosis because um, really what he was concerned about, you know, when we started this project was the sort of existential impact on, on some people when they get the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. It's almost like, again, you know, being told you have a terminal illness, you know, there's this huge fear component. A lot of people get very depressed. The antidepressant medications that we have don't necessarily work all the time. And so the project that uh, we then ended up initiating together is one where people are in a very early stage of Alzheimer's and they're just starting to get some of those uh, memory problems. And they also have some mood issues, you know, which is more around that existential or depressed mood type of thing that can, of course, come along with a diagnosis like this. And so our aim in the study that we're working on now is really to see, can it help people who are struggling with their mood and can it improve their quality of life when they get this diagnosis? Um, and sort of as a secondary aim, we're looking at, is there any change in their memory function? Obviously, that's the sort of holy grail that you are chasing after when you're looking at dementia treatments. It's something that would help either slow the degeneration of memory or, or stop it so that people have an improvement in their, in their memory function. And there's a lot of real interesting animal research with psychedelics showing that it can impact memory and learning. There's some work that suggests that it could be associated with neurogenesis or the growth of new neurons in the brain, which could potentially touch on that uh, neuroplasticity piece that you're talking about. Uh -huh. And there's also been recently some really good work showing that these drugs can actually help grow new projections from neurons. So they can change the structure of the brain. New dendrites and new synapses can form. And you know that's really the level where you would see some of the degeneration happening in the brains of people who have Alzheimer's. And so the idea that potentially a psychedelic could reverse some of that structurally and could also reverse some of that in terms of the symptoms, the memory symptoms, is extremely exciting. We don't know whether or not that's the case yet, but we're beginning to, to try to test that out. That's really interesting. That It has the motivation of acceptance with a difficult diagnosis aspect, which can lead to depression, anxiety, so forth, mm -hmm. uh, but that it also potentially has this improvement in mental function. 
So, okay, let's step back from this for a second, because, you know, we've talked about addiction and depression and PTSD, um, all of this in the in Alzheimer's now in the context of this greater mental health problem, among other things that have come out of some of this research are, uh, I guess, testimonials or, or data about people feeling connected with nature. And, and I know there's some work on this in association with psilocybin. I know you've collected some data on this and have presented on it. And I think it's, you know, among the list of uh, papers that Albert is working on at any given moment. <laughs> Can you talk to us a little bit about nature relatedness and, and what that means? Because, you know, I've, I've put this off long enough, Albert. It's time to make this about the Anthropocene. Yeah, so there's been uh, some some good initial work looking at how psychedelic use and uh, nature relatedness uh, may or may not be associated. And what they found so far is that, for instance, in a small study of seven people with major depression uh, who got a psilocybin treatment, those people after their psilocybin experiences had an increased nature relatedness, uh, whereas that was not observed in a control group who did not, uh, you know, receive psilocybin. And what is nature-relatedness? It's really kind of this idea of feeling that a person is at one with nature or is, you know, in a way uh, related to it uh, so that it's not like another that's out there, but, you know, I'm part of that. You know, that's really important for this environmental situation that we find ourselves in, you know, this crisis, really, because if we see the ecosphere and the environment and all of life is something that we're a part of, then we don't want to destroy that. We want to try to help preserve that. And so... The people who have been doing this work think it's got really important ramifications at the moment because this could potentially help us get to a place where more people are doing pro-environmental behaviors, acting in ways that are congruent with you know preservation of life on the planet, uh, as opposed to the sort of destructive path we're on right now. But we have some really nice clear-cut data that's showing that in our smoking cessation trial, added these measures you know years ago when we got the ball rolling and. Um, sure enough, people are having increased connectedness to nature after they're receiving psilocybin, but not after receiving nicotine patches. And everything else is pretty much the same. And so that really points pretty strongly to the idea that these psychedelics indeed can enhance this sense of being connected to nature, or being one with nature, or however you want to call it. Yeah, you know, and I guess one thing I, I want to uh, interject with here is that if you set aside all this really fascinating work with psychedelics and just look at nature connectedness, nature relatedness, and and mental health. Um, there's a rich body of literature out there that nature connectedness, it's associated with all kinds of positive mental health attributes, you know, feelings of of, of well-being, of, uh, of empathy, of healthy habits. Now, Obviously, the correlation causation question persists, but it feels like that's an important thing to introduce separate and apart from psychedelic research. Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, there's there's a huge body of literature that's showing that people who spend more time in nature, that being, you know, around nature noises, um, you know, all sorts of data that showing not only um, improvements in mental health and well-being, uh, but also even, you know, things like stress hormone levels and you know, a great big study I was looking at with thousands of people was finding that people were spending a couple hours a week in natural settings like parks or wilderness areas are having uh, significantly higher mental health and well-being than uh, people who don't. 
like you're saying, there's a huge literature that really shows the mental health benefits of this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, so there is one thing about this that kind of confuses me. And let me see if I can put this together, because intuitively, as somebody who spends a lot of time outdoors and who feels, you know, I, I would wager that my personal uh, score of nature relatedness, nature connectedness is probably very high. You know, intuitively, I sort of can see how that feeling and, and even cultivating and establishing and returning to that feeling of, of being connected to nature is psychologically important and good for the soul. But it also strikes me that you know, to go back to something said much earlier in the conversation about how my experiences with psychedelics were ones of hyper-reality and with a, a much closer connection to the truth, that knowledge of sort of ecological destruction in the world, the, the Anthropocene, for want of a better term, or at least ecological transformation, you know, has the potential to really introduce deep feelings of anxiety and fear, certainly fear for the future. So I guess I'm trying to make some of these observations a little problematic because feeling connected to a changing nature and a nature that's accelerating in, in terms of its transformation actually seems more challenging than euphoric. No, absolutely. I mean, I think what you're pointing to is that there's clearly some big problems in terms of where we're at with the uh, environment and the way that it's being treated, both within the United States right now, where the Environmental Protection Agency is being systematically dismantled by the current administration. Um, but if you know you want to look at where you know the Amazonian rainforest is coming down, you know at frightening pace, and you've got you know the, basically the destruction of this natural environment that's happening, you know all around us, the pollution of water and air, and not to mention climate change. I mean, you know, right, and not to mention the elephant in the room, you know. Yeah. Um, so you've got all of these huge mounting problems that could potentially make this planet uninhabitable. Uh, and yeah, I think what, what it can do, you know, having this increased nature relatedness is uh, ignite a sense of urgency uh, in a group of people who are otherwise might feel either disconnected or apathetic or like there's nothing they can do. In that sense, you know, I think that can be considered a, a stress, a good stress instead of a distress. And so that, you know, that you stress is good because it will motivate us to move and to do something and, um, you know, make changes. Yeah. And, you know, Michael Pollan has made the point that the rise of the counterculture and the rise of the environmental movement in the 1960s, maybe those two things are not so coincidental. And I think, you know, to draw another analogy, you know, we were talking earlier about addiction. And one of the commonalities with addiction is, is feelings of powerlessness, that the drug has a hold on you. And while we might not mechanize be able to say why a psilocybin experience helps somebody overcome addiction. There's a similar analogy there, too, in that, like, more is possible. We are capable of individual and collective behavior. That maybe is about, you know, getting off addiction to fossil fuels or, you know, excessive meat consumption or whatever uh, systemic, you know, ecological problem we may be pointing to. So, uh, you know, there's a lot there. It's really exciting stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, and you know, I think as we've sort of alluded to, but not really put our finger on, these mental health crises are not happening in a vacuum. You know, people aren't just depressed for no reason unnecessarily. People aren't just getting addicted to substances because they're addictive. That is true, you know, to some extent. But, um, you know, the reason we're seeing things get worse in terms of the mental health uh, situation is clearly linked to 
all these other things going on around us, including, you know, the climate crisis and where we're at in terms of the environment. So I know that there's a very real sense that we're destroying the planet. And I think knowing that we're doing that to ourselves and that we're doing that to potentially future generations, it was very unsettling and creates a lot of anxiety. And so all of these things are kind of tied together in important ways. And hopefully psychedelics can be a piece of some more collective action towards bettering a lot of these situations, both mental health as well as the sort of environmental situation that we're in. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up because that was my next question. I mean, one of the things that one of the reasons I reached out to you, one of the reasons I'm so interested in this topic is that I can begin to see some real common denominators between the mental health crisis and the environmental crisis. And I think the research with psychedelics is illuminating some of those commonalities. I happen to agree with you that one of the reasons I think that there may be an increase in uh, mental uh, health issues, you know, across the world is because of the environmental crisis. I think it's a component. What else do you attribute it to? I mean, is it, is, or do we just live in a ego-driven, selfish culture that leads to feelings of alienation and lets the egos run amok in a, in a way that causes things like addiction uh, and, and, and depression and anxiety? And, you know, do you have a grand hypothesis for why we're all so sick, Albert. <laughs> oh, I wish I wish I had an easy answer for that. It's an easy question. Mean, it's a layup, man. I figure you had this, you know. Yeah, I do, Mike, and here it is. I mean, you know, I hate to um, come down too hard on a, on a certain type of phenomenon that's pushing us in this direction. But, you know, I think since industrialization uh, and the kind of capitalism that we're seeing right now, um, where there's just huge uh, gaps in uh, wealth equality are really part of the problem. And I think being in a, in a system where, you know, people don't have access to things like healthcare sometimes or to meaningful work puts us in a place where we feel disconnected and we feel the need to get drunk or get high. So you, you can just feel better because things are so dire. Yeah. Fill the hole. Yeah. And, you know, we're in a culture now where we're missing uh, sometimes a sense of greater purpose, uh, a sense of meaning, a sense of connection to something bigger than ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's where my interest in transcendence actually comes in, um, because that's something that can be really healthy for people is to, to feel connected. And, you know, we do it in, in our own ways, you know. And right now, I think it's hard for people to, to feel that way. I mean, a lot of our current culture uh, in the U.S. is isolating and alienating in a way that, uh, that you uh, suggested. You know, it, it drives us into our own little burrows, and it's, I think, very hard to feel like you're a part of something bigger or uh, part of something meaningful. Yeah. You know, when you don't have that sense, then it's, it, you know, can lead to a lot of, I think, despair and sadness and sometimes pathology. And uh, those are the, the things that I think we're going to have to work on culturally, you know, in order to overcome some of the mental health and environmental crises as well. And I think, you know, psychedelics aren't going to take us all the way there. You know, I think a lot of that is going to be us rolling up our sleeves and getting our hands dirty and creating new cultural institutions that are more in keeping with uh, our own health and with the health of the, the planet that we live on. And, you know, that's going to be, I think, a difficult transition as we're seeing, you know, right now. Yeah, because the old ways, you know, don't want to just kind of go out without a fight. You know, they they die hard, but it's either change or you know perish at this point because there's not a lot of options. You know. 
Yeah, the stakes are high. There's no question. You know, one of the biggest reasons I was so excited to talk to you and so excited to engage with this research is that I just see so much hope here. How can you not? There's this large mental health crisis. There's the environmental crisis. I've also heard of research that we were not able to talk about, but that touches on attitudes of authoritarianism, which leads me to think a little bit about political tribalism. When you look at all of these things, it's really hard not to just feel like excited. Oh my God, there's a story of hope here. There's so, we're so desperate for hope sometimes in this world. And as soon as I say all that inside, I say, chill, dude, pump the brakes. The world is in a desperate place, but it's, it's not like psychedelics are the answer to everything. I, I don't know. I'm curious to hear how you would like to tell the audience how to, how to gauge all that, you know, how to balance those feelings of hope and excitement and that there are some real opportunities and pathways forward here, you know, without uh, offering some context around it as well. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you're right. I mean, this is a very difficult time in terms of where we're at historically right now between the stuff that's going on with the coronavirus pandemic, racial relations in the U.S., global geopolitics, just in general, you know, what's going on between the different superpowers, where we're at with the environmental crisis, and of course, mental health. Uh, all of these things, you know, are big and complicated issues. And as a result, we are hungry and, and feeling desperate for something hopeful. Psychedelics do offer that in a way. They do offer this beacon of hopefulness uh, for us. You know, that said, I think you're right. We can't jump the shark here and just say, oh, this is going to solve all our problems because clearly it's not. And so it's walking that fine line of, yes, I think this is extremely exciting and um, there's a lot of potential here with the psychedelics and what they can do to help people uh, and to help us move society in the right direction. But it's, it's like, you know, looking at the polls and saying, oh, the candidate I want is going to win, so I don't need to worry about it. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. you really need to get out there and vote. <laughs> yeah. yeah right, right, right. You know, one thing I take away from this, among many others, is that because feelings of spiritual transcendence and, and, and mysticism are so woven into the experience, you know, whether it's psychedelics or not, it does seem to me that the need for spiritual solutions in the world is something that we just shouldn't shy away from. Whether you achieve those spiritual experiences through psychedelics or not. And, and, and that seems to me actually to be a really important through line in your journey and your interests in transpersonal psychology. So I guess I just want to wrap this up by saying really, really impressed with your work, your journey. Um, Man, I got a lot out of this conversation. And uh, Albert, thanks for making the time, man. This was an absolute blast. No, uh, you know, I think uh, this was a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking with you. And yeah, uh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, man. Uh, next time I'm in Baltimore, I'll give you a holler. Next time I'm allowed to travel. Before we wrap up, I have one quick thing to tell you about. After I recorded this conversation with Albert, he sent me an email saying, hey, there's a new study we're launching here at Johns Hopkins, and we want your help getting the word out. 
basically, they can only take in so many people to do the kind of wraparound therapeutic work that Albert and I talked about in the conversation, but they're interested in gathering more data from the real world from people who are having experiences on psilocybin. So they're doing a prospective longitudinal online survey where people can sign up and fill out surveys before and after their psilocybin use. Albert and his team are looking for people to provide feedback on the nature of their experience. So, like I said, they want to get the word out. And if you're interested, you can find more information at hopkinspsychedelic.org backslash unlimited hyphen sciences. So I'll say that all again. Hopkins Psychedelic. I'm not going to spell that out. Just hopkinspsychedelic.org backslash unlimited hyphen sciences. I think if you look around, you'll be able to find it easy enough. And Albert asked me to help spread the word, so there you go. Thanks again to Albert for a great conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Thanks, as always, for listening. Hope to see you soon.